0: To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey, everybody, and welcome back in once again to the Lions of Liberty podcast, broadcasting from sunny Los Angeles, California. And it continues to amaze me how many people I can seem to fit into the Lions of Liberty Studios for this, for this show. The applause just seems to get louder every single week. I don't know how we're cramming y'all in here, but I'm happy to have you. And I'm happy to have you guys listening out there on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, maybe even on Daily Paul Radio, where we are every single Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Now, something a lot of us run into when engaged in political debate is that we often kind of hit a wall with people when trying to speak logically and rationally about something. Many people seem to have an emotional attachment to their political beliefs, And for many of us, it comes simply from how we are raised. You know, I was raised in a Republican household. My parents were Republican. I seemed like, uh, you know, they were right. So I was a Republican. And, you know, I would always find myself sort of defending Republican policies because that's just the way it was. They were my guys. They were my team. Out here in California, where I live now, for whatever reason, many people are emotionally predisposed to support Democrats and progressive policies and no matter what kind of conversation you're going to get in with that kind of person, they're going to really hold strongly to those beliefs in a very kind of a deep emotional way. Other places in the country, it may be the opposite. There are probably other areas where people are predisposed to be sort of conservative Republicans. We are all, we all have these little paradigms, these little groups that we're put into, and we develop these emotional attachments to them to the point where it can often become very difficult to engage in rational and logical conversation. You know, it almost takes on a religious nature. If, if I'm talking to someone who I remember at some point was anti-war back when Bush was in office, and I try to point out how Barack Obama has killed scores of civilians bombing Libya, Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, they act as if I told them that their God isn't real. They have this, this sort of hysterical reaction. And it can be very difficult to get past that. And this is a subject that I've been thinking about and I've really wanted to explore for a while. And my guest today is someone who has done some research into this area. She has quite the biography. She has spent time as a radio operator at the South Pole. She has worked as a translator on Russian fishing boats during the Cold War. She was a captain in the U.S. Army. She has several engineering degrees, including a Ph.D. in systems engineering. She is a fellow at the American Institute of Medical and Biological Engineers... And is currently a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. And if all of that wasn't enough, she has found time to author several nonfiction books, including *Cold Blooded Kindness* and *Evil Genes*. Barbara Oakley, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast.
1: It's such a pleasure to be here. I, I'm really—it's it, uh, a great show, and it's going to be a, a fun fun time i think
0: well i certainly appreciate your attitude because you know as much as we talk about serious things here we like to have fun and we like to you know make sure that the listening experience is you know a pleasurable one for everybody so we're certainly starting off on the right note with you here
1: (laughs) well i it's it's actually such a treat for me when i read about what what you do and what your focus is I just think it's so important in society today to have your voice here, uh, so it's it's really a pleasure for me to be here.
0: Well, great, and yeah, and then that's the great thing about, you know, living in the times that we live in, because, you know, I, I'm not a professional radio host or anything like that, I guess, maybe I am, maybe some might call me one now, but, you know, I'm just a guy who one day decided to start a website to kind of help spread some of the ideas that, you know, through friends of mine had. And then I now I'm just a guy who just you know has a map book and started a podcast. So this is really is the kind of thing that anybody can do now, and it's it's really an amazing time we live in. And now Barbara, speaking of amazing times, you have probably one of the most fascinating biographies of any guests I've had on. I I probably could have spent the whole show just rattling off all the cool things you've done and been involved with in your life. But, you know, why don't you just kind of maybe introduce yourself a little further to our audience, give us maybe maybe the Cliff Notes version, but how did you go from doing some of this stuff like, you know, being a radio operator at the South Pole, being in the Army, and getting to this point now where you've, you know, you're producing some really interesting work on uh, neuroscience, human behavior, and that kind of thing. So how did this all get going for you?
1: Well, that's is, it's a little odd to hear this from a professor of engineering, but all growing up, when I was a child, I loved language and culture and absolutely hated math and science and technology, and I wanted nothing to do with it. So when I graduated from high school, I... uh, wanted to go into college and study language. And my father said, well, great, you can do that on your own dime because I'm not <laughs> going to pay for you to, to learn those kinds of things because you can't really ultimately find a job as easily when you have those kinds of credentials. So, of course, as a youngster, I thought I knew better than anyone. And uh, I said, great, I'll enlist in the Army because that way at least I'll be able to learn a language and they'll pay me to do that. And I remember my father looking at me and just kind of laughing and saying, "Oh, you're going to get a great education." And, uh, and of course, he was right. I enlisted and learned a language Russian. I got an in-service ROTC scholarship that allowed me to go on and get my first degree, a Bachelor of Sciences or of arts, in Slavic languages and literature. And then the army, in their great wisdom commissioned me as a Signal Corps officer. So all of a sudden, I was expected to know everything about technology and be able to put together radio systems, wiring systems, switchboards and the like. And of course, I didn't even know what a volt was, much less how to work with these kinds of electronic contraptions and so forth. Oh, As I worked away, I worked with all these West Point engineers, and I came to realize that these guys really knew how to solve problems in a way that I didn't. And so I decided that when I got out of my commitment, my service commitment after four years, I decided to see if I could change my brain and learn engineering. And to my shock... I was actually able to do really well at it after some initial trepidation. And it's it's pretty nerve-wracking when you're 26 to start trying to compete with all these young whippersnappers who were always really good at those kinds of things. But as I did all of this, I would... Study engineering for a while, and then I like there were job opportunities where I could go out and work as a Soviet trans or a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea, and uh, so I did that. You would go out and just drink for six months, and then you come back Sounds and like a blast. study. <laughs> so it, it, well, it has its ups and downs, uh, and then I worked, got a job as a radio operator at the South Pole station in Antarctica. And that's where I met my husband, so I always say, I had to go to the ends of the earth to meet that man. <laughs> but all of these experiences, I, I ended up working for a number of years out in industry as an engineer and then ended up getting my PhD and becoming a professor. But what that all does is it gives me a very different perspective on academia, on academics, on how how shaped you often are, inadvertently, you don't even realize it, by the the way that everyone around you is thinking. And I think working for the Soviets gave me a great deal of insight into that. I, I worked in an environment where these individuals, all hundred or so that were on the trawler, had all grown up indoctrinated with with communist ideology. And they all believed in a certain way that had no real bearing on what was actually going on. They believed the United States was the great Satan, that they had, that people were just, uh, it was nothing like what we as Americans actually are. They had no idea that people could actually buy things freely, that we could think freely, that we could act freely. They, they had these misconceptions, but they all believed in these misconceptions because everybody else believed in them. And sometimes I, I think that's what's happening nowadays in American society. You'll have large groups of people who don't talk to other groups of people. They have sort of straw man versions of what the opposition is actually thinking or what they're like. And they all believe it because they only talk amongst themselves. So it's it's actually it's kind of intimidating sometimes because I see a lot of this same kind of groupthink that I saw with the Soviets and the same kind of fear sometimes that arises because you're afraid if you do the wrong thing, suddenly you'll get attacked and marginalized or worse by the group. And that can be a pretty intimidating thing.
0: Sure. That's kind of like um, our current political system. I mean, there's so much groupthink involved from a very early age. I think a lot of us end up kind of pegged into sort of either a left paradigm or a right paradigm and end up kind of just identifying with this group, I mean, I was raised in sort of like a, a small government Republican household. And I mean, looking back now at the time, I thought I was just being logical. But looking back now, I, I found myself just always defending Republicans by default, just because, well, you know, that was my team. That's that's the side I was on. So of course, they're right. I have to leap to their defense. I mean, luckily, I, I found a way to change my brain a little bit and think differently. And it's interesting, because that's something you had mentioned earlier, is how you kind of change your brain or changed uh, what you thought your brain was. You didn't. You weren't interested in mathematics and engineering and that sort of thing. And so many people kind of decide they're in a certain box, whether it's politically or whether it's, you know, what they're able to do. You know, most people would decide at some age they're not into math and then they're never going to look into math, whereas you decided that and were able to sort of, you know, change the way you thought about things and realize, oh, I actually can do this. I actually can think another way. And I think that's something that's so important about your work is that it, it. I mean, we are all human, so we all have certain abilities. We all have the ability to reason. We all have the ability to use logic. And yet so many of us aren't using that because we end up in, like you said, in this kind of groupthink mentality in these ways where we feel like we're going to be ostracized if we don't maybe toe a certain party line. What do you think about that?
1: I think you're exactly right. Um, I think... It's hard. It just plain I mean, is hard sometimes because it's uncomfortable to try to start thinking or understanding and putting yourself into some somebody else's shoes or to try to grapple with new perspectives. It's so comfortable to just think that, oh, the other side is... You know they're just evil. They're just bad. They're just uh, whatever, and and kind of be really entrenched in your own sense of rightness and goodness. And so it, it is. It's really tough sometimes to make yourself climb out of that shell and try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who thinks really differently. And I think that's where my work on pathological altruism comes about. Um, And pathological altruism is just the idea that you can truly have good intentions for someone else or for others or or another group, uh, and yet someone looking sort of from the outside as an external observer could look at what you're doing and say, you know, you're not really helping. And it's this idea of trying to become more like an external observer yourself, a rational, dispassionate, external person. That I think that's, that's uh, it's impossible to get there, but it's a nice thing to aspire to.
0: Now, one of the books you wrote, Evil Jeans, the full title of that book is Evil Genes." Why Rome Fell, Hitler Rose, Enron Failed, and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend. And I have to ask, I mean, did, did that is that something that actually occurred? Is that hyperbole or did that actually happen to you?
1: It actually did occur. It was that kind of behavior, along with behavior that I saw from KGB agents, from nasty military officers and enlisted people from from people traveling and working all around the world there was always this sort of small percentage of really nasty people who were they're not outright psychopaths they they're not out there murdering or or even just inflicting bodily harm or whatever but they're really cagey about doing nasty things to others that often serve themselves to advantage. So it could well be your boss, a sibling or something like that. And I I guess I got to wondering, you know, what's really going on? What's science actually telling us about these kinds of seemingly ordinary people who can be so malevolent in what they do. And so I don't know what got into me, but I thought, "Gosh, you know, I'm a I'm a professor of engineering. I've got good scientific training. Why don't I go see what science has to say about this kind of thing?" And what I found was absolutely shocking. You, uh, first of all, it's it's hard to even nail somebody down and say what's the scientific term that you would use on something like Medline as a keyword to find really malevolent people. I mean, you can't like type in mean and see if something comes up with that. Right. So finally, I, I came across the term, which is widely used in psychological literature, called uh, malevolent narcissism. Hmm. And I thought, oh, well, this seems to describe, or malignant narcissism, sorry, this seems to describe the kinds of behavior that I'm seeing. And it's a widely used term, that's that's what they all, there's thousands of papers on it. So I went to, as opposed to the body of psychological literature, or research literature, I went and looked in Medline to see what scientific research, you know, on genetics, neuroimaging, all that kind of stuff, what it had to say. And I found that there was not a single scientific paper on this term, Malignant Narcissism, about which thousands of psychological research papers had been studied. In other words, all these research papers had absolutely no real legitimate scientific basis whatsoever. And then when I really started looking at things, I began to realize that <laughs> there, there were many, many issues with uh, the way that psychologists and psychological researchers were actually grappling with, with the whole idea. And part of it was that psychologists, it, particularly at that time when I was researching the book, around 2005, 2006, they were deeply vested in the idea that genetics and biological underpinnings could have no bearing whatsoever in why people would act in a nasty fashion. And I'm not saying that that's the only reason why someone would act in a sociopathic fashion, but simply that that's part of it, yet that was simply not acknowledged at all at the time. And in fact, after the book came out, and I I went around and spoke nationally about, about the topic of malevolent people, I was roundly attacked at many universities for daring to think that biology could have anything to do with it. It had to be how a person was raised. That was the thinking at the time. So at any rate, coming to my sister, my sister had polio as uh, when she was three years old, and so she was away from the family for many years. Uh, she was in an iron lung for a while, fighting for her life. And then when she came out, as my father said, she was different. She And part of this, I think, was due to the damage of the polio itself. So it was biological in that sense. It turns out, here's the kind of thing that my sister would do. So she ran away from home at age 19, and she was gone for 10 years. And my parents were beside themselves. But at that time, there really wasn't a lot you could do to track somebody down who wanted to be hidden. And but 10 years later, she called my dad and said, "I'm really sorry for what I've done to the family." And she'd done a lot and I'd like to come home. And so my father was overjoyed and he sent her plane or he, he sent her money for a plane ticket and she used it to buy something else. So he sent her some more money, and she used it to buy something else. And so finally got smart, and he sent her a plane ticket. And so she um, she showed up, and I remember her coming up and hugging me. Oh, my goodness, you're so glad. And I was so special, really special, right? And And you kind of know inside, you're wondering, is she saying this to everybody she's meeting here now? But she was like, oh, I'm so glad to reconnect with the family, and I really wanted to, to be with you. And this is all I want to do in the coming months is just kind of learn how you all are and just reconnect and, and, and apologize. And inside, I was like, ah, but maybe it's true. You really want to believe something like that's true. So after we met, we spent about an hour talking together, and she excused herself to go down to the store. And while she was at the store, she met a man, moved in with him, and then I didn't see her for another five years. Wow. So you you wonder, how on earth could somebody do something like that, much less steal my mother's boyfriend, which she did? But part of it, as I learned, related to the fact that polio, always, always, always damages a little very important area of the brain known as the reticular formation. And what that does is that allows you to focus and maintain attention. So when I wasn't standing in front of her, when she was down at the store, she wasn't focused on me. She couldn't really focus on the family because we weren't right in front of her. So in part, I strongly suspect that some of the malevolent actions she took were simply as a result of both biological and social factors that occurred uh, largely as a consequence of the polio. And for her, you can point directly to something like that and say, ah, you know, and and it's not that everybody with polio has this kind of... um, Behavior manifests as a consequence because everybody's different. The polio attacks some people more or less, and they attack slightly different areas. Some, if you look at the research area the, or literature from the 1940s, some people will talk about how they were in a fog for years after getting polio, whereas others didn't really experience that at all. So everybody is really different. But for her, it, it's pretty clear that, that that could well have played a major role. But for a lot of malevolent people, it's, I, I think uh, biology and social factors can play a bigger role than you might ever imagine. And social factors change your biological factors. Um, you grow up being in a society that's not very trusting, you can be less trusting yourself and that actually manifests biologically in how your brain functions. So social factors and biological genetic factors all intertwine very tightly. So anyway, that's the long story of uh, of my sister and how that kind of brought me into tying together uh, engineering ideas and also using that to better understand uh, our psychological underpinnings
0: that is really fascinating. I mean, I think all of us know people in our lives, you know, maybe not to that same extreme of you know stealing our mother's boyfriend, but you know I think we all encounter people in our lives that maybe are seem on the surface, generally good people, but then they'll do things that we just can't really understand. They'll seemingly lie or steal, and they won't really feel that kind of, you know, they won't feel that that was the wrong thing to do, whereas, you know, I think many of us instinctively do feel that it's wrong to lie, cheat, and steal, and that kind of thing. So it's really fascinating to think about, you know, why do people think so differently? I mean, we're all humans. We're all born with, theoretically, you know, a similar structure, and yet so many of us operate on completely different moral codes and it's just really fascinating that you know that to to think about all the factors that go into that um now i want to really get delve into this concept that you mentioned earlier of pathological altruism so he just kind of briefly described us exactly what is pathological altruism and you know how, what has your kind of research into that subject uncovered
1: pathological altruism is subjectively you feel you're helping and objectively so, in other words, you may have strong feelings that you're doing something helpful for someone or some or some group, and yet the outcome is actually not at all what really was desired. So, an example might be something like, I mean, this can happen at a number of different levels, so on a personal level as opposed to a societal level. On a personal level, you say that your brother is a heroin addict. And so he says, just give me the money for one more hit and then I'll go back into therapy. And he says this or uh, several times. And every time you give him money, he goes off and does it. And then he comes back and he begs and he's desperate. And you so empathize with his pleas that you think you're helping him by giving him money, but of course, you're just actually furthering his addiction. That's just that's one example. But let's give a different example. In the 1930s and 40s, a massive study was done in Boston. Uh, they took 500 boys, uh, ages 7 through 13, and they split them in half. And 250 of these boys, they did nothing to. That was their control group. And the other 250, they gave every conceivable form of help that they could give. They gave them tutoring for classes. They gave them uh, medical, psychiatric care, just uh, summer schools, summer camps, programs, everything they could to help. So then 30 years later a woman did a follow-up study, and she tracked down a good number of these 500 kids to see what had actually happened. And what she found was that in a statistically significant manner, the students who'd gotten all this help were worse off than the students who'd gotten no help at all. And by worse off, I mean these students were more likely to have become criminals, to have had major criminal activity, to have died earlier, they were unhealthier. They were worse off in a number of different ways. So this program that was meant to be so helpful and was actually quite expensive, um, and it ran for five years, actually seems to have done a disservice to those students by the very fact of trying to help. It's almost as if that took away the students' internal drive to help themselves. Oh, also, these, these students ended up in lower-class jobs. So it kind of makes you wonder, all the social programs we have now to help, are those actually worsening by lessening people's self-efficacy, the very groups that we most want to help.
0: And further from that, it seems like, you know, once people have decided that they support maybe a certain program or, or or something like that, they aren't really even open to the information that might show them that that program isn't actually doing what they believe it does I mean, just take for a a current example of Obamacare. Now, I, I believe that many people support it or at least, you know, did in the first place because they honestly believe that, you know, it would, quote unquote, help everyone get health insurance. And of course, what kind of heartless bastard wouldn't want everyone to have health insurance? But for them, that the thought process often seems to stop kind of at that marketing point. You know, often if you attempt to sort of logically engage people and explain things, you know, like why price fixing will cause, you know, distortions in the marketplace and, and cause doctor shortages and how all this redistribution and subsidies cause medical prices to rise for everybody. You know why the law is forcing employers to cut down on on hours for certain people. You know I'm a freelance worker. I have several companies that I work with and you know one of them is cutting my hours back for the year due to this law. And yet when you try to just even explain some of these simple things step by step you're faced with almost just an anger, a backlash. You know, you'll just hear something completely off the cuff, a straw man argument like you mentioned earlier. Oh, I guess you want the big corporations running everything then. And, you know, and and the the real point is, you know, that's kind of what Obamacare does. It actually forces everyone into a situation where their corporations are, are running their health care, but, and yet any attempts, and I'm not saying I'm, I may be the best at explaining to this, there are possibly other factors there too, maybe I need better arguments to craft, I'm certainly open to that, but it seems that in many cases I'm not even able to get to the point where I'm able to kind of make that logical argument because of the kind of intense emotional attachment that people seem to have to certain policies or, you know, in a broader sense, to their chosen political party or political ideology or what have you.
1: Oh, that is so true. I've become intensely interested in this idea of sort of buying into something because you think it's helpful and then following that on a road to ruin right good intentions or you know the road to hell is paved in good intentions and i researched a killer in utah and because what i wanted to do was to find a prototypical example of a a person who did really wanted to do good and it actually created problems and what i found was that this killer, um, she had married, uh, who she termed a psychopath, and she ended up. He was trying to kill her, and so she shot him in the head. And, but when you really, really looked at what was going on, actually, she was the the real the person who was acting like a psychopath, not him. He had real problems with drugs and so forth, but. When you talk to a lot of people he wasn't he wasn't really wasn't a great guy, and he was in prison, but there's some evidence that he's not the only one that she's killed uh and that she was really good at stirring people up at angering them and 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 indeed her her husband who she killed had tried to leave her uh, the very day that um that she shot him, and she went and brought him back to her house, and that's when she shot him. But as I began really investigating, what was she like? Talking to friends, family, people who knew her, knew her well over many years. It was a very interesting um, scenario. It, with her, she had this very cunning intelligence but it was riding on top of this deeply emotional basis where she could believe whatever she wanted to believe, and then she could use this rationality to shore it all up. So she could believe the the, the strangest things. And sometimes I, I just wonder, as a whole in society, it seems that people sometimes... They either start from an emotional place, and they shore that up with reason, or they start from more of a rational place that's influenced by their, their emotions. And when you have these people that are starting more from an emotional basis and then using rationality on top of that, it's really hard to reach, if not impossible, to reach people like that. And so I I suspect that that's sometimes what you might be dealing with. If you're convinced on an emotional level that something is good for other people, all the reason in the world is not going to deal with the emotional way that they're dealing with it. And so you just can't reach them.
0: How does this concept of of pathological altruism, can that help explain some of kind of the great historical tyrannies and tragedies that we have seen in the world, whether it's, you know, the Holocaust or, you know, the massacres in Rwanda, the killing fields, uh, Stalin... Uh, maybe even the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's something that people always put to the side and then forget that it, the event being so horrible and killing so many people because they're attached to this emotional idea that it was for the good of the country and the good of everybody. So, you know, does that concept speak to, you know, why people in mass might accept such, you know, on the surface, such terrible things like mass murder?
1: Well, Absolutely. Uh, Let me give you just a little perspective on Hiroshima, for example. I went to Hiroshima, and I was sitting there, going through the museum, listening to all these things, and I got to this one part where, as I'm listening on the earphones, they said, and of course, the only reason that the Americans dropped the bomb was to justify the enormous costs of the bomb, building the bomb, to the American population, and I sat there listening to that, and I thought, yeah, my, do- my jaw dropped open, because in my family, my uncle was killed during World War II, and my father was a bomber pilot, and when he went through bomber pilot school, he very fortunately got pneumonia, and almost died. I've seen pictures of him and he looks like a concentration camp survivor. He he must have lost 60 pounds. He looked like a skeleton. And he was held back, but all the rest of his class was sent on to Europe and the entire class died. So my father, when he finally got well and he was able to complete his training, he was absolutely He wanted to go on to Europe to, you know, to follow um, where his classmates were. And he told them that, and they said, uh, you don't have a choice. You will stay here, and you will be an instructor. And he said, well, I, I just won't do it. And they said, well, then you're going to have to fly decoy planes back and forth. That will be your, that's the assignment you'll get. So he ended up having to stay for another year and a half as an instructor. So finally, they said, okay, you can go. You'll be assigned to the Asian theater. So at that time, they were getting everyone ready, and it was looking pretty much like it was going to be just like Europe all over again. We were going to lose hundreds of thousands of young men, because people knew that, especially the Japanese, were you get to the homeland and they're not going to stop. I mean, it'll be these; they would do anything, right? Um, and they'd already done pretty much everything in the the countries they'd been invading and destroying, with the rape of Nanking and so forth. So, at the time, the decision about whether to drop the bomb really involved. Do we want to lose hundreds of thousands of our finest young men in in this, bat, you know, we saw what happened in Germany. We're going to have to play the same game all over again in Japan. Do we drop the bomb? that's a, it, It's not a bunch of bad guys saying we're going to be really evil and just kill a bunch of innocent civilians because we're just so nasty. I mean, it was a very real... And my father is alive, or was alive, because they decided to drop that bomb. So we can make it very simplistic, uh, but altruism and pathological altruism involves these very ideas. At the time, it can seem, and it can actually be, or sometimes not, something that is truly helpful for others. Sometimes there's no right answers. But sometimes, as in places like Germany, when you have everything being blamed on one ethnic group, and if we just kill all them, everything will be just fine. And the same with the the Tutsis in Rwanda. There's this sense of parochial altruism. In, In other words, my group is good but we're going to hate this other group. And it's really easy to get wrapped up to it. And you see that now going on with this idea of, oh, there's the evil one percenters. Well, if we didn't have the one percenters to hate, you know, there's some other group that would be brought in to hate. Pathologies of altruism often involve helping your group at the expense of some other group. And sometimes the expense is really an anathema.
0: Reminds me of uh, George Orwell's 1984, the two-minute hate. You know, the the idea was you always had to make sure the citizens were sort of filled with hate towards something or someone, whether it's another country, another people. Because, you know, that hate lets them, lets you, lets them, the government, sort of drive their policies in whatever direction they want because it's all justified by this sort of ideal that there are these other groups out there that are bad. And we see this today in in the war on terror. And, you know, we're told that, you know, Muslims are bad and, and you know, um, people from this country might be bad. And we need to watch out for people from here or there and that kind of thing. It all kind of seems to lead back to this idea of, of you know group hate almost, you know, this idea that we're not bad people, but there are other bad people out there, so we might need to do some bad things to keep our good group safe. Um, uh, Barbara, I don't expect you to be able to solve all the world's problems here with your research, but I'm, I'm just wondering what kind of insights you might have on how this stuff can be combated because it just seems like it's too much to overcome sometimes. You know, how, how can you stop people from thinking, having this sort of group think on such a mass scale and how can you get people to, I guess maybe on a one by one basis, that's what we're trying to do here is, is try to get people to Take back that emotion just a step and try to look at things in a way, actually using reason, using logic, because that's the only way we can really, you know, get to a reasonable place in life, I guess, or, or come to reasonable conclusions about what kind of, you know, what violence we should use on other people, what sort of political policies, what sort of policies we should come up with. So, do you have any insights on how we can, I guess, get around this? Is just understanding it kind of the first step? Well,
1: I think that Saul Alinsky and some of his followers were insightful in pointing out the idea of small wins, that small wins, you just take one tiny step, and then that can help grow other steps. And for me, one thing that I think has been problematic in this country, and I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction than what we've been talking about, is that You've noticed that there's people have fallen away dramatically from studying what's called the STEM disciplines science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And instead, what they've been doing is studying um, when they've been encouraged to go to college, and when they do, they often specialize in social sciences and the humanities. There's almost like a push towards those disciplines and away from the science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines, and I think that it's very important to get that kind of, at least some of that reason-based training. With my work, uh, my next book that's coming out, it's just called A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel in Math and Science, Even if You Flunked Algebra, and it gives some understanding of how you learn, how the brain works so that you can learn effectively in those disciplines, because it's my own tiny way of making a small win is just helping people understand that they can learn to think more along the lines of a scientifically objective observer think in a more rational way, and there are real-world constraints to things, and sometimes when you're studying the humanities and the social sciences, you can just make stuff up, (laughs) and it's okay, and that's expected in those disciplines, but in the real-world disciplines, the professions, you can't sort of make things up, and sometimes I think government needs people who realize that there are real-world constraints, and you can't make things up sometimes. So anyway, that's my own work involves this idea of of just helping people realize that even if they don't think they can learn a little bit of some of these other disciplines, they actually can, And, and it's actually kind of fun.
0: Well, Barbara, I think your work is extremely important, extremely interesting, and it especially gives, I think, a lot of insight to people that run into issues with political conversation and and always run into the this place where we just can't seem to make logical headway because you run into the, the I guess, the pathological altruism with a lot of people, people that are good people or they seem to be, they have good intentions, and yet you can't really have a, a really in depth kind of logical conversation with them on these issues. So I think, you know, having people understand these issues that you're talking about can really help us get some insight and maybe into, you know, how we can kind of move things forward on our own. And, you know, you mentioned the small wins there, and that's what we try to do at our website, Lions of Liberty. We're just trying to put some ideas out there, maybe hopefully hope that someone catches one of these small wins and maybe starts thinking in things in a different way maybe starts changing their brain as you did at one point and you know going into start studying math and you thought you never could so maybe we hope that somebody will start looking at some of these ideas of of hu- human individual liberty when they thought well maybe that stuff was just so stupid nothing to ever think about so i think we're kind of in a in a in some way on a similar path in that manner. And, you know, Barbara, like I said, your work's very important, and and we could probably spend hours and hours and hours talking about this stuff. But, you know, for that reason, I really want to encourage people to check out your work further, check out some of your books, and, you know, just let everybody know out there before I let you go, how can people keep in touch with you, continue to follow your works, any articles you're writing, and, of course, your books. Give them the whole deal.
1: Oh, well, uh, just pop to my website, www.barbaraoakley.com, and there I'll be, and you you can find all my books up there and a little bit of linkage as to a lot of my work. So I just, I really appreciate you having me on board today. I think the work you're doing is fabulously important, and I think it's actually bigger than my small wins. So I salute you.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. And I will definitely use that quote from you someday. Uh, your work is fabulously important. I'll put it on a t-shirt, on a book cover, a bumper sticker, something like that. So, <laughs> And I've got it on record. I've got it recorded. You can't get out of it now. So, <laughs> Barbara, O'Keefe, thank you so much again for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time. And keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Take care. You want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to youth through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving agree to disagree yeah it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single friday at 4 30 p.m pacific join the show what do we talk about politics religion and spirituality basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar (laughs) you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar but we have them every single friday at 4 30 p.m pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com join the show offer your opinion and let's agree to disagree but let's have a good conversation Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you The Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of The Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media newsfeed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. Every Monday we have our longest running feature, Mondays with Murray, named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view, along with our little spin as well. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LinesOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Wow, guys, what a fascinating talk with Barbara Oakley. And I think this is a very important subject to explore, particularly the concept of pathological altruism. You know, once someone has decided that a particular act or policy has good intentions it can be very difficult to convince them that despite those intentions that particular policy may have negative consequences may trample on individual rights perhaps and look i mostly discussed this in the context of you know left and right democrat and republican today but this applies to all of us it can certainly apply to libertarians as well I mean, try having a rational conversation critical of Rand Paul, for example, with some of his, you know, more rabid supporters, more enthusiastic supporters. And there's nothing wrong with being an enthusiastic supporter. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes you'll get a backlash. You won't be able to engage in that sort of logical, reasoned conversation. And look, hey, even I am guilty of this as well, what most likely, you know, back with my support of Ron Paul back in the day, and I love Ron Paul. He got me very interested in in doing what we're doing now with our website, lionsofliberty.com, and doing this podcast, but I think I often, looking back, can say I found myself always emotionally jumping to Ron Paul's defense on everything and everything, no matter what it is. I think Ron Paul happens to be right about a lot, but he's probably wrong about some things too. And when I was such a strong supporter of his, when his presidential campaign seemed like the only way to, I guess, bring liberty to the world, it became a very, you know, something I was very emotionally attached to. Someone attacked Ron Paul, I would get upset. There's nothing wrong with getting upset. But you got to take a step back and think about the actual criticisms and reasonably, logically have a conversation about them, because how are you going to convince anyone otherwise how are you gonna convince anyone of your beliefs if you're just spouting off with your emotional nonsense you know we are all in some way biologically prone to this concept that if we believe we're doing good logic and reason get pushed to the side we have to train our brain change our brain to use logic and reason to arrive at truths in the world So it is so important to be aware of this, aware of these things that block us from using our logic and reason. Now that's why we do this show. That's why I wanted to have Barbara Oakley on today, to get these ideas out there, to get some of these small winds blowing, and hope that someone out there picks up on them, catches a gust, starts to take some interest in the ideas of liberty. And we hope you're taking some interest. We want to hear from you. Please come over to our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, over on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Find us on Google+. No matter where you're listening to this show, whether it's iTunes, Daily Paul Radio, Stitcher, I highly encourage you to come over to iTunes, subscribe to our show, give us a rating, put a comment there. It really helps get our show out to more people. That's why we do this, to advance these ideas, not just with ourselves, but with other people that have never been exposed to them before. Only you guys can help me do that. I can only do so much. I only have so much of a reach on my own. But together, all of us together, man, the reach we can have is unlimited. So any help you guys can give me just to recommend the show to somebody else. If you like what I'm doing, you know, I promise I'll keep putting this show out. If you guys can just help me a little bit and help getting it out to more people. You do that and I'll keep coming back with great shows with great guests like Barbara Oakley every single week throughout the summer. It's going to be a summer of Liberty Gang. And we look forward to more guests, more shows. We look forward to hearing from you and I hope you look forward to hearing from me. And until then... Guys, you know what I'm gonna say by now, don't you? I need you to do me a little bitty favor and just live long and live free.